Two weeks ago, we started a series on the Trinity, and uh, it's really unfortunate that we had to cancel last week because a lot of what I said two weeks ago is going to kind of lay the foundation for the rest. So I'm going to review, and hopefully uh, it'll jog your memory, and then we can move on from there. Uh, we've begun to look at the Old Testament hints of the Trinity. Of course, the main teaching of the Old Testament is that there is one God, uh, but there are these indicators of plurality within God. We looked at several of those. Um, remember the name of God, Yahweh, and I mentioned when you see the Lord in all caps, uh, that's not the word Lord in Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh. Uh, that's the distinction English translations make between the all caps um, and just Lord with just the L in caps. I don't know if you remember all of that, but uh, all caps Lord, that's the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament, but then there's these clues that point towards plurality within God, uh, such as the word Elohim uh, being plural, plural pronouns used in Genesis, let us make man in our image, uh, things like that that seem to indicate that there's plurality within God. And then we looked at the angel of the Lord. Uh, angel of the Lord is a figure who is distinct from God in some sense, and yet at the same time, he's clearly God. We looked at several texts in the Old Testament showing that. And all of this leads to uh, what John writes in the first chapter of his gospel. John 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Uh, now, there is in this verse a textual variant as well as a debate over how to translate a particular word, monogenes in Greek. And so it's a little bit tricky, but this could be potentially uh, translated the God who is at the Father's side, um, as it is there in John 1.18, or it could be the only Son who is at the Father's side, uh, because in, in Greek, theos and huios, the word for Son, so the word for God and the word for Son, look very similar. In fact, not to be too confusing, but the nomina seca, which is an abbreviated form of those two words, it's one dash difference. Okay, so when we see in English, son and God, well, those don't look anything like each other. In Greek, they're very, very close. And so somewhere along the line, a scribe messed it up, and we don't know for sure which one's original. It's either the only son or the only God. Um, and it's tricky to sort out which one is which. The ESV here has God. So clearly, either way, this is a reference to Jesus. The only God who is at the Father's side, or the only Son who is at the Father's side. Uh, the other word, monogonase, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, um, often in the, in the New Testament it's translated only begotten, and uh, most modern translations have moved away from that. They'll now say the one and only, or the unique. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a few weeks, why that is. Either way, though, <clears throat> clearly, no matter how you translate it, this is a reference to Jesus. And it's saying that Jesus is God, he is the only Son of the Father, he is the one at the Father's side, and, and no one has ever seen God the Father. So all of those appearances of God to people in the Old Testament, according to John 1.18, those were appearances of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, not the Father. Okay, so nobody's ever seen the Father, but then you say, well, what about you know the angel of the Lord who appears to Joshua? What about uh, when God speaks to Moses face to face? What about all of those texts? That's Jesus. Okay, the burning bush, that's Jesus. All of those instances when people saw some physical form of God. It was not God the Father. It was Jesus Christ. Uh, all right. Uh, to wrap up the Old Testament teachings, basically the, the main thrust of the Old Testament is there is only one God. That's the primary teaching of the Old Testament. But then there's these hints at plurality within that one God. 
And in the New Testament, it, it turns up the lights. And I think I mentioned this analogy uh, a couple of weeks ago where B.B. Uh, Warfield says that the Old Testament is like a fully furnished room with the lights dim, right? So all of it's there, but, but you know, it's not like there's a new God in the New Testament, okay? Nothing changed, but the lights are turned up in the New Testament, so you can see so clearly uh, what was there. Before we leave the Old Testament completely, though, I want to show a couple of examples <clears throat> where New Testament authors, Jesus, and then the author of Hebrews, point back to something in the Old Testament as a hint of plurality. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so Yahweh says to my Lord, who is my Lord? This is David speaking. So who is David's Lord? Well, Yahweh, <laughs> God. So God is talking to God here. And Jesus pointed this out in, uh, in the book of Matthew as an indicator of his deity. So Matthew twenty two forty one, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And normally the, the Pharisees are the ones asking Jesus a question, trying to trip him up. But here he turns the tables and asks them a question. Verse 42, uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They say to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Um, so this was a gotcha question from Jesus to try to point out to them who David was talking about here, which they understood to be the Messiah correctly, also was God, also was divine. Because David doesn't just say, my, you know, the Lord will say to my descendant. He says the Lord's going to say to my Lord. And so there's, there's a, a sense in which the Messiah is elevated above David. Um, and so Jesus is just kind of pointing out, uh, wh what do you guys do with this verse? Uh, and showing that this is talking about Christ. Uh, Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay, so, so who is this being spoken to? He's spoken to God. The next few verses. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom, God's kingdom, is a scepter of uprightness. You, God, have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Uh, that's really confusing if there's only a, a monolithic person in God, right? Who is this talking to? Because it's written to God, and yet it says your God has done this for, for God. Um, and then, of course, the author of Hebrews clarifies this. Hebrews 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uh, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, meaning the Father, your God, has anointed you, the Son, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so uh, that's just another hint in the Old Testament uh, where we see the plurality within God. So the Trinity, yes, it is a New Testament teaching. It's explicit in the New Testament, but looking back on the Old Testament, you do see several texts, and there's more we could look at, where clearly there's plurality there, uh, and there's something more going on there than just one single person. Uh, as we transition to the New Testament, we're going to see a major shift in the way that the apostles write about God. Uh, the triune nature of God is seen virtually on every page of the New Testament. And so the first thing we're going to look at, and we're going to go person by person, starting with the Father, showing that the Father is God. This should be obvious. It's never really been debated in church history that the Father was God. Some have wanted to claim Jesus wasn't God, like Arius, 
Uh, others have claimed the spirit wasn't God. He was just some force or something. Um, but pretty much everybody's always agreed throughout church history. Of course, the Father is God. Uh, but we'll look at a few texts here. Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So for praying to the Father, obviously the Father is God. Philippians 4, 20. To our, only, uh, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So clearly the Father is God. Um, one thing I want to point out here, this will become important as we keep going. In the New Testament, often um, God is shorthand for the Father specifically. So we're going to see that many times where God means normally Father and Lord normally means Son. Okay, so just an example, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. <clears throat> Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, that can be a confusing verse, but you see there, God is the Father, Lord is the Son. Now, does that mean that uh, the Father isn't Lord? Of course not. And so we shouldn't take from that that Jesus isn't God either. Uh, but in the New Testament, especially in Paul, you find him referring to the Father as God and the Son as Lord. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, well, who's God in that first? Clearly the Father. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You got the Holy Spirit on the other end. Who's God in the middle? The Father. And so often in the New Testament, just keep that in mind, the word God typically, especially in Paul's writings, is shorthand for the Father specifically. Uh, and by the way, that's a really good verse on the Trinity there because you have all three persons mentioned right there. But, so the, the Father is God. That's, again, not really debated by anybody who claims to believe the Bible. Second, the Son is God. And this is probably as far as we'll get today. Showing the deity of Christ. We'll see this in several ways. Uh, but first, Jesus clearly is God because Jesus received worship. Or we could say Jesus understood himself to be God. Uh, a lot of modern-day scholars, for some reason, have decided to... Uh, follow this argument that Jesus never really claimed to be God, that it was something people cooked up later. Um, I don't know how you read the Gospels and, and come to that conclusion, because Jesus so explicitly and clearly understood himself to be God. Uh, Luke 4, verse 8, you remember this from the temptation narrative. Jesus answers Satan and says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus believed that only the true God, Yahweh, was worthy of worship. And then people worship Jesus throughout the Gospels. And so if Jesus says, you should only worship, <clears throat> you should only worship God, <clears throat> and then people are worshiping him, uh, we would expect that he would stop them. <laughs> no, don't do that. Uh, only worship God. And yet he allows it. So what does that mean? Well, clearly he understands himself to be equal with God. A couple of examples of this, John 20. Uh, this is where Doubting Thomas, you remember, was, uh, hadn't seen Christ risen yet. People were telling him that he was. And uh, he said, unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I put my hands in, his, uh, in, in the prints of his, you know, the nail marks, I'm not going to believe that he's risen again. Uh, in verse 27, Jesus appears to Thomas and says, Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, if he did not understand himself to be divine, uh, surely he would have stopped Thomas and corrected him and said, no, stop, that's not me. And so Thomas says, my Lord, my God, verse 29, Jesus says to him, 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so he accepts the worship of Thomas and he accepts being called God. And there's other texts we could look at. The maniac of Gadara uh, worships Jesus. We see in Revelation 1, uh, John falls at Jesus' feet. Uh, when Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples in the boat worshipped him. Many of these uh, cases. And in all of them, Jesus accepts their worship. He never corrects them. Um, interestingly, in Revelation, and I think, well, maybe Ezekiel, uh, one of the Old Testament prophets, there are instances where human beings worshipped angels where they would uh, you know, bow down to them or something, and the angel stopped them and said, don't do that, worship only God. Jesus never responded that way. He always received the worship, and so he understands himself to be God. Luke 5.17, we can also see that Jesus is God because Jesus forgives sins, which only God can do. Uh, this is one of, in my mind, the clearest uh, examples of the deity of Christ explicitly in the Gospels. Luke 5.17 on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus." When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, on this particular point, they're absolutely right. Of course, only God has the authority to forgive sins. And so they consider this to be blasphemy. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he, was lying, what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. They glorified God, were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So, Jesus does not disagree with their conclusion. Only God can forgive sins. Instead, what he says is, I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins by healing this man. So you're going to see instantly a physical healing. And Jesus says, the conclusion you should draw from that, if I have the power to heal this man physically, then you should believe that I have the power to forgive his sins. And so, in other words... Jesus healing this paralyzed man and making him walk again was not uh, was proving the fact that he was indeed God. He was not disagreeing with their conclusion that only God can forgive sins. Rather, he was saying, yes, that's right, and I'm God. I'm about to prove it. Okay, so clearly, Jesus understands himself to be God. Uh, one more explicit statement from Jesus about this, John 10. Uh, actually, we'll look at a couple more. John 10, I and the Father are one, Jesus says. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, Jesus doesn't say to them in response, oh, I wasn't meaning that, I'm not God. He never corrects them. That's not his defense. Rather, he says, my works... 
My miracles are evidence or proof that I am God. Verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So he's just saying there, um, yes, I am making myself out to be God. And my works, my miracles, are, are evidence of that fact. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Uh, by the way, one, one thing just to say, to those who would claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, and this is the claim of Jews and Muslims and all, you know, a lot of religions will say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. If that's true, why were the Jews always trying to kill him for blasphemy? <laughs> okay, They were constantly, obviously they understood him to be claiming that he was God. Uh, John 8, verse 56, this is another instance. Uh, Your father Abraham, Jesus says, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly, that's a reference to Exodus, I think it's 34, where uh, God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says, what's your name? And, and, uh, and God responds, I am that I am. Okay, that's obviously what's being referenced here. And so, verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Again, they understood his claim to, to deity, uh, which is why they were constantly trying to kill him. Uh, a couple more explicit statements. This is just not from Jesus directly, but uh, the apostles to see that the early church believed in the deity of Jesus. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Clearly, Peter understands uh, Jesus to be God. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, and then Romans 9 verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Clearly, Paul understands Jesus to be God. Uh, Acts 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, as speaking to pastors, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Well, who's God and who's the he in that passage? God, because it says to care for the church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. Well, who shed his blood for the church? Jesus. So clearly he understands Jesus and God to be equal. Uh, all right, perhaps the most clear place that Scripture teaches the deity of Jesus uh, is the Gospel of John, and particularly John chapter 1, and we'll spend a little bit of time on this. The whole book of John was written in order to convince the reader that Jesus is the Son of God. John explicitly says this toward the end of the Gospel, verse 31 of John 20, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so he is writing in order to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God. And in the prologue, he, he's giving an understanding of Jesus so that the reader of his gospel will view the rest of the book of John uh, through the lens of John 1. And so in, the, in the, very, the first 18 verses of John 1, he's laying out clearly the trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, and then basically the rest of the gospel is to be read 
with that understanding. So right at the outset, the, the first verse of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So much in, in just in, the, in those verses, you hear in the beginning, well, that takes you right back to Genesis 1, right? And we're thinking, okay, so he's talking about in the beginning, Genesis 1, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, that's Trinity right there. You've got someone called the Word who was with God, so there's a distinction there, and yet he was God. Uh, verse 2, he, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, who made everything? Well, again, we're, we're thinking in Genesis 1 terms, and, and what's the first verse of the Bible, right? God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And he is saying the Word, the one who was in the beginning with God, was a part of that creative uh, action. All things were made through the Word. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Verse 14, the Word, so this is that person who was with God from the beginning, distinct from God, and yet he was God, uh, part of the, you know, he created the worlds, everything was made through him. Verse 14, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of Jesus, taking on human flesh, becoming a human being. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And there you see, he's clarifying who he's talking about here. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So clearly, right at the outset of John's gospel, he is laying out that Jesus is the word, that he, he existed from all of eternity. He's the creator of the world. And yet, you know, in that first verse, it's, you see distinction. He was with God and he was God. And that's the Trinity, right? He was, he's distinct from the Father and yet equal with the Father. Uh, one final note in the deity of Christ, in Isaiah 6, a uh, very powerful scene here. This is where Isaiah sees Yahweh high and lifted up, uh, and the angel saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, famous text in Isaiah 6. Isaiah then is uh, terrified because he realizes he's in the presence of God. And in verse 5 he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Okay, so Isaiah says, I saw Yahweh. And then later, uh, the Lord speaks to Isaiah, verse 9. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Uh, make the heart of this people dull and their, eye, uh, their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Okay, so Isaiah 6, he sees Yahweh on the throne in heaven. Just keep that in your mind as we go to John 12. In John 12, John is basically saying that although the people saw the miracles of Jesus, uh, they did not believe in him. They saw all of these signs, and yet they rejected him. Verse 39, Therefore they could not believe. For again, quoting Isaiah, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, turn, and I would heal them. Now that's clearly a quote from what we just saw, Isaiah 6. This is when Isaiah sees Yahweh on the throne, he gets that message from him. Now notice what John says, verse 41. 
Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the him? Spoke of who? Spoke of Christ. And so he is saying there that when John or when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 saw Yahweh seated on the throne, he was seeing Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about a clear indication that John understands that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the eternal God of the Old Testament. Uh, there's other examples of this where Jesus is equated with Yahweh. We'll see this. Uh, I'm not going to go to these, but in uh, Paul's writings, he quotes from Isaiah 45, a text that is about Yahweh. And then Paul says it is to Jesus in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Uh, and so he's showing there again that Jesus is Yahweh, the God of, the, uh, of Israel, the Old Testament. All right, we have a few minutes for questions. And I, I don't want to get into any more because that'll take us over time. So I hope you have questions. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right, and if Jesus wasn't God, if he wasn't claiming that for himself, I'll get to you in just one minute. Um, uh, was I, I just got distracted there. What was I thinking? Oh, when the Jews kept accusing him of, being, of saying that he's God, okay, and trying to kill him for that claim, why wouldn't Jesus correct them? If that wasn't what he meant, why wouldn't he say, oh, no, you've misunderstood. I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, you know, Jesus says, I'm the son of God. And they say, and they pick up stones to stone him because he makes himself equal with God. That's John 5. Okay. Why wouldn't Jesus say, oh, that's not what I meant. I just meant I'm the son of God. I, I was created by God. He never said that. He let them continue thinking, yes, I am making that claim of myself. Um, so yeah, I, that, that claim just holds no water with me at all. Uh, Catherine, you had a question? John 1.18, uh, no one's ever seen God, the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. No, there's more to it than that. Um, all right, let's go to burning bush. Uh, Exodus. Ooh. Now you're going to make me find the reference. No, it's early in uh, Exodus. Let's see here. Exodus 3, okay, <clears throat> verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside, see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Okay, and so a few things there. First, verse 2 says, the angel of Yahweh appeared to him. And as we saw last week, the angel of Yahweh is distinct from the Father 
yet equal with God. I believe the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament is always Jesus. I don't see any example where that doesn't work. I think it fits very well. And so you've got Yahweh seeing him turning aside to the bush, and then you've got God speaking out of the bush. So there's two different persons there. And the one in the bush is the angel of Yahweh, which I take to be Jesus. So that's one example where, uh, where that would be. The other one, the other one you just brought up, um, I'm not sure if I'd be able to find exactly where that is, but no, the, most of the time, in fact, you're, you'll find that it is um, clarified. It's, it doesn't just say God appeared to somebody. It says the angel of, of Yahweh. Um, trying to see where, where um, correct. That's what John one eighteen says. Yep. Um, so Genesis thirty five would be another example. <clears throat> oh, let's see here. Oh, I'm in the wrong one. Where's the, uh, the, the account of Jacob wrestling with the angel? Anybody know that offhand? Uh, let's see. I know it's when he's going to meet Esau. Yeah, here we go. Genesis thir uh, 32. Jacob was left alone, verse 24. Genesis 32, 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him, until the breaking of the dawn. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, you, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven, uh, striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. He said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. Uh, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Um, again, I thought there was a more clear reference in there, but again, I take that to be Jesus, not the Father uh, there. So yeah, every time in the Old Testament, and this is just, if somebody can show me another example, I don't see any place where God appears uh, and it's not Jesus, or where the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is not Jesus. I think those are all Christophanies, pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Uh, so any other questions? Does that clarify that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. Uh, so Titus 2.13. <laughs> uh, how do I explain this one? So first of all, let me read it for you in the King James, because at this particular point, um, 
King James is problematic. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So there it looks like two different people. Okay, in the ESV and most, pretty much any modern translation, it's going to say the great God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, making them the same. Now, what is that based on? Um, I don't know how to explain this simply, so I'll just give it to you. And if it doesn't make sense, I'll try to clarify later. But uh, this is what's called uh, Granville Sharp's rule. This is a, a Greek grammatical rule that was discovered in the 1800s. And it basically goes like this. Uh, if you have two proper nouns, um, so God and Savior, for instance, referring to a person, and there is a chi, an and in between them, there's an article before the first one and not the second one, it's always referring to the same person. That's the Greek rule. Okay, in English, um, how can we say this? <clears throat> okay, <and> it, <clears throat> there would be some parallels in English. So if I said, um, let's see, the, the founder and CEO of Amazon is Jeff Bezos. Or I guess I would say, okay, no, let me phrase it a different way. Uh, I met the founder and CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. Well, those are the same person because you have a the proper noun founder and, and then, uh, what did I say? CEO. Okay. Now he's not the CEO anymore. He stepped down, but that's irrelevant. Uh, clearly those two are referring to one person and that works in Greek the same way. So just from the grammar of Greek, the fact that it is, you know, in, in Greek, has theos, the God and Kai, and it, it, basically it follows that same order, the God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, this is a point where modern translations, I think, do a very good job of showing in English, grammatically, this is the same person. So go ahead. Right, right. If I said I met the founder and the CEO of Amazon, well, now that sounds like two different people. If I say the founder and CEO, that's even in English that works. So does that make sense? I don't know. Okay. Um, that's Granville Sharp's rule. You can look up. It's the same exact thing in Second um, Peter 1.1, 1, 1, uh, which I also read a minute ago. The same construction is there. <clears throat> Let's see here. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, in English, you see the article is not there in English, but in, in Greek, articles don't always mean the in Greek, but it would read, if you were to translate it literally, uh, the God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and the possessive there, our, has to do with the spelling of the words in Greek. It's just different than English. Uh, but you see there in English, the translators are showing you God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is one person being referenced by the two proper nouns. So yeah, Granville Sharp's rule, it shows up a few times in the New Testament, um, and it is one of the stronger defenses for the deity of Jesus. But if you look at um, you know, the New World Translation or something, they'll change that. Just like in John 1, 1, or John 1, uh, yeah, 1. They'll say, and I didn't get into that one, but... Jehovah's Witness Bible will say, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. <laughs> they slipped that little word A in there. Uh, instead of saying the Word was God, they say the Word was a God. And again, there's a Greek answer for that. 
and that is that the article, the two nouns, word and God, are both in the nominative case. When you have a article before one of those, it just makes it the subject. So it's just the word was God. But they are the same. There is no defense for the translation, the word was a God. Um, and yet, if a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, that'll be their argument. They'll, if you take them to John 1, 1, they'll pull out their Bible and show you. I've had this happen before, where they've tried to say, oh, well, your translation is just wrong. Uh, don't buy that. That's not true. <laughs> uh, there is no defense for the translation that the word was a God. All right, we are out of time, uh, but we'll pick up here next week.